If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. How did the Anglo-Saxons think about the changing seasons? Did they have the same months and use the same calendar that we do? What were the main festivals they celebrated? And why was winter such an important period for Anglo-Saxon poets? To find out more, David Musgrove spoke to Eleanor Parker, the author of Winters in the World, A Journey Through the Anglo-Saxon Year. So today I'm joined by Eleanor Parker, whose new book, Winters in the World, A Journey Through the Anglo-Saxon Year, is published now by Reaction Books in the UK. Eleanor, welcome. Thanks for coming back to the podcast. You've been on before, so good to have you back. How are you? Thanks. Thank you. Fine. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Good. Good. Well, very, very happy to have you back. It's a great book. So look, let's get started. Let's just uh, set things up a bit. So the book subtitle, as I said, is A Journey Through the Anglo-Saxon Saxon year. Um, Just for our listeners, you better give us kind of the parameters of the period here. What do you mean by Anglo-Saxon? 
Yeah, so I'm talking here about the period of English history from sort of roughly the 5th century up to the 11th century, so the time of the Norman Conquest or a little bit afterwards. Um, so it's quite a long period, but it's one that saw a really significant change in thinking about the year and the seasons and, and the calendar and so on, because it was the period in which, of course, the Anglo-Saxons converted to Christianity, so moved away from their pre-Christian calendar of seasons and festivals and so on and adopted a version of the Christian calendar that then kind of became embedded in England. Okay, good. So you've you've sort of um, introduced us to quite a few of the themes in the book there. So we'll pick them up as as we go through the conversation. So basically, you're sort of tracking the progress of the year and, and the and the changing face of the seasons and what sort of happened to people as um, as as the year progressed. So basic question: When did the the year start for the Anglo Saxons? That's actually a surprisingly difficult question um, because there are different dates on which people thought it started. Um, Probably in the pre-Christian calendar, it seems to have started with the winter solstice, um, so December 25th. And some people seem to have still thought of that as the beginning of the year for a really long time, actually, even though when Christianity came, they adopted the Roman calendar and that begins like our year does on the 1st of January. Um, So they probably had maybe even quite a vague sense that just sort of the middle of winter was actually the beginning of the year. Um, But for a lot of people, maybe it didn't even matter exactly what the start of the year was, so they could be kind of fairly uh, loose about it. Yeah. And and in terms of the actual months, did they have the same month structure as, as we do today? Well, again, that was something that really changed when they adopted the Roman calendar, the Julian calendar, um, because originally they had all their own months. Um, They had a lunar calendar and they had a whole set of really interesting month names. we have so the the Northumbrian historian Bede, eighth century historian, is our source for these, and he gives us these wonderful names and explains what he thought they meant. So things like you know the month of August was called Weed Monath, the the month of weeds, because it's the time when weeds were really plentiful. Um, or Winter Fulith was October because that was the month that saw um, when the first full moon of winter um, occurred. So you've got those kinds of names which are really tied to seasonal cycles. Um, and then a couple of months that he beads as anyway were named after goddesses, um, like Hrethmonath, which was their name for March, maybe named after a goddess called Hreida. Um, so that kind of thing. And uh, we're, we're chatting at the end of August. Um, so this, yes. this podcast might go out a little bit later, but I, I was reading mm. the book um, in the garden and, and Bede got it right. It was, it is the yes, month of weeds. Yes, lots of weeds around. It's all going How confident are we um, that, that Bede, the venerable Bede, got those, those month names right? Or is, uh, is, it, um, uh, is it a robust bit of information from him? Well, it's people have different views on this. So um, most likely he, he actually, I mean, it's kind of not like necessarily these were the Anglo-Saxon months that everybody followed before the, the adoption of the, the Roman calendar. You know, maybe there were alternative systems in different areas. You know, Anglo-Saxon England was made up of different regions, different kingdoms who spoke their own varieties of, of Old English. So they might well have all have had different names for the months. And the ones that Bede gives us, um, you know, he's giving us his explanation of them, but he is sometimes maybe just speculating. And obviously he was better informed than we are about some of these things. But if he didn't know what a name, what the, the name meant, he might have just kind of made up an explanation that sounded good to him. So it's really interesting, but we have to be a little bit careful about his information. So so it might have been the case that if somebody was uh, happened to be wandering across the, the face of, of England as, as it is now, um, mm. uh, they might they might say, oh, well, it's um, it's August now. And people say, well, no, no, it's not. It's, yeah. uh, we've got a <laughs> yeah. completely different name for it. Yeah, that's right. So in in Kent, probably the month uh, August was named something like Rugen, um, which is something to do with the rye harvest, apparently. So you know, yeah, yeah there was definitely variety. Um, what about seasons? Obviously, today we speak of the the four seasons. Um, 
did did they have the same season model as as we do have now? No, they didn't. So we take we take like four seasons of the year. We take that for granted. <laughs> we think everybody thought things. Yeah, absolutely. There's four seasons. But again, that was something which came to England only with the adoption of the Christian calendar. Um, they originally, again according to Bede, only had two seasons: um, summer and winter, both six months long, um, which were kind of centred on the solstices. So midsummer and midwinter, the winter solstice and the summer solstice, were the kind of key turning points of the year. Um, and then when they adopted Christianity in the new calendar, they did get this idea of the, the four-season year. But even their idea of the, those four seasons isn't exactly the same as ours. Um, so, for instance, they, they don't exactly have the same idea of autumn as we do. Autumn in Old English is called harvest, um, and it seems to really just be centred on the idea of harvest. And I think for us, autumn would encompass like a whole other, a lot of other things than just that. So their ideas of the seasons are not really the same as ours at all. And you, you've mentioned a few times the the, the moment when the, the Roman calendar, the Christian calendar, is adopted. Mm. Um, perhaps we should um, sort of clarify that. What is the, mm. is there a specific moment when that happens? Well, it came basically with the coming of Christianity, effectively, because Christianity obviously is a religion of the book. Um, so writing and books came to England with um, with the new religion, um, and. With the calculation of time, um, you know, that being specific about certain feast days, like the dating of Easter, um, or knowing what day of the month it is so you can be celebrating a certain saint's day, is all really important to the structure of the, the Christian liturgical calendar. Um, and all of that would have come new to the Anglo-Saxons. And they converted, the different kingdoms converted at different times, but basically over the course of the 7th century, um, in the 600s, sort of one by one, they converted. And with that, you know, observing the new calendar would have been an important part of that. But then it probably would have taken quite a bit of time to sort of get bedded down with you know ordinary english people for sure so mm. and there are all sorts of interesting things that happened i'm thinking of the synod of Whit- whitby and, and yeah, sort of lots of conversations right. about yes. how things were calculated so it was a, a kind of an ongoing conversation i guess over the over the course of that period i, I wonder it, it just strikes me um uh, when we think about sort of clock time and we think about um the introduction of the railways in the in the victorian period and and how timetables um came about and people had to rely more on on clocks to understand what was going on was it was it a similar sort of thing, perhaps, um, in the in the sixth and seventh century, as, as Christianity came in and uh, like a more formal structure was adopted, where 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 months and and maybe seasons were were more 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 strictly adhered to. I think for some people, for sort of educated people um, like Bede, you know, you'd get these people who are really interested in the calendar and who did have to sort of regulate their time in a quite specific way that was in harmony with the way that the rest of the church was doing it. Um, But then for a lot of people, it probably wasn't necessary to do that, actually. You know, most people in Anglo-Saxon England were illiterate. They were doing work that didn't necessarily depend on you knowing exactly what day of the month it was. More important, maybe just to know sort of roughly how far you are past the solstice so you have some sense of how many hours of daylight you're going to have or, you know, when the next full moon might be so you know when you're going to have light in, in the evening, something like that. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to know the exact date um, or that it kind of matters to your life particularly. So knowledge of the calendar is a kind of learned, specialised sort of skill um, in Anglo-Saxon England. Mm, okay. So um, so you wouldn't necessarily, again, if I was this uh, this um, apocryphal traveller wandering around, yeah. I said, what day is it? Um, people might not have recognised that, that as, a, as, a, as a good question. Yeah, they might have said, you know, three days since midsummer or something like that. But yeah, they yeah. might not have minded very much. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, that's a that's a nice setup. Gives a, a sense about what we're talking about. I would imagine um, that the sort of the general rhythm of the of the year for most people was very much dictated by the needs of the farm and the natural world. And I'm thinking about um, people outside of of the monastic institutions. I guess is that is that a reasonable assumption to make? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about a very, very much an agricultural society here in which, you know, everyone's food is, is kind of coming as a result of the agricultural cycle. So I think everyone would have had some awareness and probably some degree of involvement with, you know, different seasons of sowing and ploughing and planting and harvesting and all of that. That would have been really important. Um, and also, of course, things like the length and, you know, the, the changing hours of daylight at different times of the year, that affects what kind of work people can do, whatever their work is. You know, if you're a craftsman or something, there's a limited amount of work you can do in winter when the days are very short and dark. So I think that sense of how the seasons are passing would have been really related to what sorts of work were possible at different times of year, what kind of food was available or what wasn't available, you know, what was it in shortage. Um, and that kind of would have would have affected most people. Mm, OK. Now, you've got loads of fascinating detail um, in your book about about the, the sort of the yearly round for, for, the, for the people. You mentioned bead earlier. What sources have you used? What, what sources can you mine to, to give a sense of, 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 the, of, this, of this question? So I was trying to sort of range quite widely across Old English sources. There's a lot more surviving um, Old English sources than I think many people realise from Anglo-Saxon England. Um, so I was looking partly at the kind of, um, you know, functional or pragmatic use of seasons and feast days in things like laws and, um, you know, descriptions of the farming year in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the history, the annals of um, which cover a large part of Anglo-Saxon history. Um, but I was also interested in how people sort of thought about the seasons and maybe their spiritual or their religious significance so I was looking at sermons as well and um, and poetry that kind of gives a sense of how the year might be thought about or kind of experienced or you know a more kind of um, of emotive or, or subjective response to the seasons. Can you give us a sense about what are the key moments in the Anglo-Saxon year? You've mentioned the, the solstices um, in the initial period but what are the main points in the year that uh, sort of people hung their hats on? <laughs> well, the solstice is actually, interestingly, did continue to be important. Um, so not just in the pagan period, but right through the Christian period too, because obviously the winter solstice became Christmas, which is one of the most important festivals of the Christian year. Um, and midsummer, the summer solstice was the sort of, you know, the summer Christmas in a way. It wasn't quite as important, but it was an important turning point. Uh, it became the feast of John the Baptist in the Christian calendar. Um, and St. John's Eve on 23rd of June um, was very much a day when people would sort of celebrate or mark that moment in the year. So apparently they celebrated with probably with bonfires that seems to be the most likely way that they did it um of course you've got easter in the spring um the most important festival of the christian year um and then lots and lots of other kind of just smaller festivals candlemas lammas whitson um uh, all the just kind of marking these different moments either in the the christian cycle of the year or in the um, agricultural seasonal cycle and often sort of blending the two together Let's analyse that blending a bit more because you kind of get a sense, and you've you've just mentioned perhaps the the summer solstice um, uh, sort of morphed into 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 the festival of, of Saint John the Baptist. How, how far were pre-existing traditional moments sort of co-opted into the Christian fabric? Did, was that something that happened a lot universally, um, or, or do we sort of, sort of overegg that as we as we understand the picture today? I think it's often something people sort of assume that lots of things were sort of, you know, taken into the, the Christian calendar or kind of stolen a bit, you know, um, mm. but it's a really complex picture. Um, so on the one problem is that we don't actually know that much about Anglo-Saxon paganism. I mentioned Bede's evidence for the calendar, but we don't really have much other, many other sources, especially to tell us what was actually being done at something like midwinter or midsummer. Um, so we often only have evidence from the Christian period. So you can say, well, maybe people have been doing it since the pre-Christian period. Very likely they had, but we can't really be sure. Um, 
There are some clear examples where Christian festivals seem to have sort of absorbed um, pre-conversion practices. So um, the Harvest Festival of Lammas, for instance, the 1st of August, um, is, seems to have been a festival of the wheat harvest. Um, that's a festival only found in Anglo-Saxon England, not elsewhere in the wider church. So that seems quite likely to have been a kind of pre-Christian harvest festival that was then adopted as a Christian festival. And it sort of fits entirely with a Christian worldview because, you you know, it's um, a feast of bread. It's a kind of got Eucharistic overtones. So it wasn't in in any way kind of incompatible with Christianity. It could just sort of take on a new meaning and be adapted to suit this sort of new new culture, really. Mm. So, so okay, so it's, so it's quite hard to be clear about this then, isn't it? Because I, it, I do think a lot of people will always, you know, there's, there's, it's often said that, you know, basically any Christian festival is grounded in, in pagan yeah. roots. And, <laughs> yeah. and it, so is, is that actually quite a difficult thing to be clear about? It is really, because I think quite often we, especially in sort of, you know, um, in our modern world, we kind of assume that something, for instance, which is related to agricultural cycles, oh, it's probably pagan. If it's about solstices, it's probably pagan. But actually the medieval church, medieval Christians were really interested in solstices and in agricultural cycles, natural cycles too. They didn't think of any of that as as non-Christian. And things like harvest festivals, you know, are also in the Bible, you know, they, they come from sort of Jewish tradition as well, first fruits festivals or whatever. So there's no sense in which they're incompatible with um, you know with biblical Christianity or, or anything like that so I think what you really have is a picture where people are celebrating festivals that are meaningful to them within a certain cultural context a social context and sort of putting labels on them like pagan or Christian or, or whatever is is often sort of you're risking being anachronistic and sort of projecting our assumptions back onto the past yeah that makes sense so I suppose maybe that the bigger incompa- incompatibility is the fact that we today are uh, much more divorced from the natural world mm, from the agricultural yeah. cycle or Absolutely, at least most yeah. of us are than 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 um than people were in the period that you're talking about yeah i think that's right because those kinds of cycles you know you convert to a new religion but actually the agricultural work of the year just goes on in basically the same way so the same kinds of moments in the year need to be marked somehow and you know whichever god you pray to when you are doing your sacrifices or or praying for a good harvest is still something that's important to do um so there's a degree of continuity there which we very much don't have and, and sort of kind of struggle to get our heads around i think that process of transition yeah you've you got to eat as much as you've got yeah, to get your spiritual exactly. nourishment i guess exactly. so um okay right brilliant so um uh, basically the book is really good in in term, terms of talking us through the cycle of the year um so i wanted to just have a, a little chat and try and pick up um uh, the, the, how, how the seasons worked out for people and, and we're going to use sort of the modern uh, winter spring summer or system here even though as you discussed maybe that wasn't um completely person the whole time uh, of the period you're talking about and 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 we'll, we'll start off with winter which as you point out in the book seems to have been like a really significant period a period um that um is is kind of much discussed in the poetry um and seems to be loaded with with meaning so tell us a bit about about winter and uh well what exactly when was winter and, and what did it mean for people Hmm. So winter runs sort of roughly from November um, to kind of February sort of time, something like that, um, or maybe a whole six months of the year from the autumnal equinox to the to the spring, depending on which one which system you're using. But it's definitely a season that looms really large in especially Anglo-Saxon poetry, but Anglo-Saxon culture um, altogether. Really, it's the longest season in in the book for, for a reason. Um, and I think, I mean, the main reason for that is that the Anglo-Saxons they lived in northern Europe. It's cold and dark for a really long time in the year, and their their defences. 
against that cold and, and darkness were, were not like ours. You know, they didn't have electric heating. They didn't have electric light. Um, uh, they, they had a food supply dependent only on what they could store to get them through the winter months. So winter really could be a dangerous season, a hard season to get through, um, probably psychologically a pretty hard season to get through when you're in November and it's getting really dark and you think there's months and months until it starts to get light again. Um, so especially in, in Anglo-Saxon poetry, it's often it carries a real emotional weight. It's a sort of a fear and it's a, a season which is used to express other kinds of fears like grief or loss or existential fears like apocalypse and, you know, social collapse, things like that are often imagined in terms of like winter is coming and taking hold of the earth. Um, so it's really a, a quite a powerful season. Well, I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because obviously when you think about it, if you are stuck in your house um, over, you know, mulling over long, dark winter nights, then your mind is going to turn to um, to troubling thoughts, I suppose, particularly if you're, if you're running short of food, which I guess would have been a, a concern for pretty much anyone um, during the period. Yeah, a real possible fear. Is there any sense that winters were harsher um, in this period than they are now. Obviously, they were harsher in the sense that people didn't have double glazing and insulation and, and electric heating. But actually, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about climate change, whether uh, whether it, it, whether the actual conditions were colder or warmer. I mean, can you tell that from, from the documentary sources? Yeah, so I think um, it's generally thought that, um, especially in the earlier part of the period, um, winters were colder than they are now. And then the Anglo-Saxon period was a sort of time of, of slight warming. So over the course of the period, it's kind of the climate of, of Britain got warmer. Um, but yeah, and especially I think if you bear in mind that a sort of, especially the tradition of Anglo-Saxon poetry is very much kind of in its cultural origins, it maybe comes actually not even from Britain, but from Scandinavia or sort of Norway or somewhere like that, where it's even colder than Britain. So it's very much, um, yeah, I think at a time when winter was was seriously a threat um and um, and on top of that of course just that you know it's very hard if you don't have modern comforts to get you through it Mm. i guess it's significant is it that um ages tended to be measured in terms of winter's past i guess i suppose if you've managed to get through a winter you've lived another year that's that's a, a significant point yeah, that's right. I mean, so the title of my book is Winters in the World. And that is a phrase from Old English poetry. Um, and it's partly a poetic way of counting years of saying, you know, a person's lived 30 winters in the world or something. It's just how long they've lived. But then in other, in some poems, it's actually used, they talk about having your share of winters in the world, that you become wise when you've had your share of winters. And that's a suggestion that maybe it's more like not just time passing, but an experience of, of suffering and sorrow. You know, everyone's got their share of winters that they have to get through. And if you go through that if you survive it then you become wise through that process um so it's like we all have to go through a certain number of winters to gain from experience sort of literally and metaphorically through the passing of time yeah okay so um so when um in uh, in in fiction in fictional accounts people talk about you know the the lead character has has passed x number of winters that is true that is that is yeah. how people might have spoke but how yeah, might probably, have yeah. addressed it yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah okay should we should we skip on past the cold months mm-hmm. to to spring the the time of of renewal um what was going on in spring it was a time for traveling i think yeah, so spring is the kind of, after the constraints of winter, then spring is the time when everything's kind of set free. That's often the impression that you get um, in Anglo-Saxon sources because um, po- um, Old English poetry often imagines winter in terms of like being the earth being chained or fettered and human beings kind of being almost like imprisoned during winter. And then once that's over, all the chains are let free and, you know, spring has come and, and everyone's um, sort of liberated from that imprisonment. Um, and of course, 
uh, for medieval Christians, Anglo-Saxon Christians, it was it was a time of fasting, so it wasn't this sort of a celebration time because it was the season of Lent, um, and. It, it was a time for a fast, partly because it was the end, end of winter and, you know, the food supplies had probably run pretty low by the time you get to February and March before more food can be can be grown. So it was a time of, in one sense, of sort of um, self-denial and, and maybe shortage and dearth and, and like quite a day, also quite a dangerous season. Um, but, you know, things are getting better. Everything's sort of on the up, especially after the equinox. You know, the days are getting longer um, and you're approaching a season when more food is going to be available again. Um, so there's a sense of sort of renewal and, and new life and um, and all of that kind of clustering around the Feast of Easter. Um, very much a festival of, you know, rebirth and new life. Still to come on the History Extra podcast stories about saints are sort of ghost stories because they are stories about the dead interacting with the living physically appearing to them speaking to them whatever but not in a way to sort of frighten them usually in a way to kind of provide give an important message or to offer help or something like that this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Can you tell us a bit more about Easter and how important it was? As you said, it was kind of, obviously, was, still is the main Christian um, festival. Um, how was it celebrated? Were people sort of working up to it for, for weeks in advance, do you think? Yeah, well, it's, you know, the, the whole season of Lent is a kind of preparation for Easter. Um, and then Easter itself lasts 40 days. So it's a, a kind of a very large 
portion of the year is kind of devoted to Easter um, in preparation and then in celebration. And there are some really interesting uh, sources from the Anglo-Saxon period describing the kinds of church services that people would go to. So not just sort of monks and and nuns, but like, you know, many people would go to, um, which were very much sort of centred on reenacting moments in um, the story of Christ's death and resurrection, very much trying to kind of bring it to life um, and and use these kind of dramatic elements of like light and darkness, the the night before Easter and then Easter dawn um, and the empty tomb and so on to, to really bring the story home to people. Um, there's some really interesting stuff there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so clearly a very significant point in the calendar. Actually, I, I wonder if it's just worth pausing here just for a second, because um, we've, we've talked about um, the Anglo-Saxons. It's, it's always worth saying the Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxon is a, is a word that's, um, that is, is somewhat controversial and, and people um, have lots of views about how, how impersonal it is to use it. But, but in terms of the 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 it, the the land that is now uh, England uh, that's 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 the area we're talking about. What about um, beyond the, the the bounds of England in Scotland and Wales? It was the same seasonal round in play. I presume it was, um, and the same and the same sort of situation applied. It's very interesting, actually, because you would think there would be a lot of similarities. You know, geographically, there's obviously a lot in, in common in terms of, of agriculture and so on. But culturally, there is actually a really significant difference between the culture of England and the culture of Ireland, Scotland, Wales in terms of seasonal festivals, the high points in the year that they marked. Um, you know, so, for instance, um, it's, it was much more important in Ireland and Scotland to, to mark um, like, so the beginning of summer at the beginning of May and then the beginning of winter at the beginning of November. And those dates don't appear at all in the Anglo-Saxon calendar as significant um, you know, and, and not at least as the beginning of summer and winter. So there's really quite a striking division. And one reason that I do use the word Anglo-Saxon in talking about this period is because I think you can actually identify quite a distinctive Anglo-Saxon or English culture in thinking about the seasonal year and the calendar, which just actually doesn't have that much in common with other parts of Britain. Um, and they stayed quite distinct for quite a long time, like right into the 18th, 19th century. There was, you know, there's really quite interesting differences. That's, that's fascinating. Where do you think that distinction derives from then? Well, I think it's, I mean, you're kind of speculating, but I guess partly from the fact that the Anglo-Saxons probably, as far as we understand, were in a sense, you know, settlers in Britain. They, they had come to Britain much later than, um, than the peoples who were living in, in places like Scotland and Wales. And so they had brought a kind of different culture with them from northern Germany, Scandinavia, wherever they were coming from. They brought a sort of slightly different culture, a very different language. Um, and then they remained distinct because they interacted with each other and, you know, in time formed a, a single kingdom of England, which had its own sort of culture and was sort of self-consciously quite distinct from the other parts of Britain. Um, so those sorts of cultural differences persisted because, you know, there was no need to, to move towards uniformity. I mean, they were all Christians, but they were all different versions of Christians and they all had different, you know, different things to celebrate and different priorities. And it's quite a diverse picture, actually. Yeah. Okay. Right. Let's let's jump back into into the seasonal round. Then we're up to summer. Um, you mentioned earlier on it was kind of a, a time for festivals, maybe fire festivals, even. So presumably this was a time for big gatherings when people could come together at certain places and and have a bit of a party. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's the right time of year, isn't it, for trying to celebrate outside. Um, so you've got a number of summer festivals. Um, so the end of the Easter season was marked by Ascension Day. Ascension Day is preceded by a few days known as Regation Tide. Um, and the main thing that people would do on Regation Tide is they would go walking out into the countryside and pray for a good harvest and bless the crops that were growing, as this would be kind of May or June sort of time, so the time when the crops are just kind of springing. Um, and these were very much, as we can tell from Anglo-Saxon sources, quite communal, quite happy sorts of processions. They seem to have had quite a good social atmosphere, everyone just going for a walk together. Um, and then you've got Whitson, um, which is Pentecost, so again, the, you know, right at the end of the Easter season. Um, and Whitson is the Anglo-Saxon name, Whitsunday, probably from White Sunday, um, because it was a time for baptisms when people would wear white garments to be baptised, and that was a summer festival too. Then you've got the summer solstice, midsummer. So there's like in May and June a whole set of different festivals that kind of you know, just brought people together. Um, they all sound quite fun, to be honest, in Anglo-Saxon sources. And and much less a time for introspection, at least in terms yeah, of the poetic so, yeah. sources. <laughs> yeah, it's a social kind of time for you. <laughs> and what about the? What you, you mentioned these fire festivals? What, what what might they they have encompassed? Do you imagine? Well, that's a really interesting question because we don't know for sure that they did. That is what they did. Um, so celebrating the, mid, the the summer solstice with fire is a, a Europe-wide tradition. So that is something you find in Ireland, for instance, and in Scandinavia. And in some places they still do it right up to the, the present day. Um, and that was what is was done in later medieval England. So in kind of 13th, 14th century England, we know that that's how people were marking the summer solstice. They would build bonfires um, like on top of a hill maybe and then you know kind of um, celebrate around them. So it seems very possible that that is also what the Anglo-Saxons did. And we know from the fact that Anglo-Saxon sources talk about Midsummer that they did something, but we don't know they did that. But that seems like a good speculation. They talk about sort of games and festivities in a vague kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fun, doesn't it? Vague games and festivities. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, and, and then sort of the, the final season, then autumn, as you've, as you've mentioned, all about the harvest. And I guess this is uh, a crucial season, particularly if you want to get through winter, you've got to have a good harvest. So, is this again a particularly important season? Does it come through in the sources as some as a, as a period when um, you know it's it's an important time of year? Yeah, absolutely. Harvest was a hugely important time of year because, like you say, that's what you have to have to get you through the winter. And so, to get in the crops, that takes a huge amount of work. Everyone has to get involved. Um, so. Uh, so like August, which was a harvest month um, for the Anglo-Saxons, was very much a sort of time of hard work. It wasn't holiday like it is for, for most of us, for me anyway, right now. Um, and that, you know, because people would be working to bring in the harvest. And so, yeah, um, there are harvest festivals and poets sort of talk about celebrating the abundance of autumn, the plenty of the earth um, and and kind of the fact that we're dependent on it for our survival. You know, human beings are essentially really very dependent on um, on the bounty of the earth and, and bringing in a good harvest. And it's really a, a very important moment in the year to kind of take stock and to celebrate and, and kind of share the produce of the harvest. Mm. And so how long does that harvest period last for, do you think? Can we be sort of clear about the parameters of that? Yeah, so probably from sort of the end of July through August into September, um, so September, according to Bede, was Harley Monath for the pagan Anglo-Saxons holy month, maybe because it was the month of harvest. And that was a time for sort of celebrating the sacred significance of the harvest. And then it seems to have been done by October. Yeah. And then presumably there would have been um, specific harvest festivals similar to the sorts of things that, that we have in parish 
churches today still? <laughs> yeah, so parish church harvest festivals are a sort of revival. They're a Victorian thing mostly. But yeah, um, there were definitely harvest celebrations. Um, so Lammas, the harvest festival of the 1st of August, um, maybe a day when um, loaves of bread would be made from the first harvested wheat and that would be blessed Um or something like that. And then also probably celebrations for the end of harvest. You get, um, you know, again, right through um, the medieval period and, and long afterwards, you get this idea of harvest home celebrations where you mark, you know, the, the final sheaves of the harvest have come home. So that's your time for having a feast um, and giving, you know, giving feast to, feasts to the reapers in uh, reward for their work is something that Anglo-Saxon sources mention as, you know, an important thing for farmers to do. You've got to pay people for all of that work they've been doing for you. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Makes sense. Um, okay. And let, let's just sort of roll back uh, around towards winter again. I'm, I'm just going to ask you a, a couple of questions about Halloween and um, what, if anything, li- links our current Halloween festival with what happened in your period? Yeah, so Halloween, as we think of it today, um, is kind of, you know, it's a time for encountering ghosts or spirits or or something like that. Um, It's very much not an English tradition in the Middle Ages, not an Anglo-Saxon tradition. It does have a long history in Ireland and Scotland and in Wales and in some parts of England, which are sort of culturally closest to Scotland and Wales especially. Um, But even 100 years ago, it wasn't really celebrated in very large parts of England. So it it probably has its origins in in the Irish and the Celtic world, probably as a festival market the beginning of winter um, and the Anglo-Saxons had other ways of marking the beginning of winter um, and then that festival kind of became connected with the Christian festival of All Saints, All Hallows, which had its origins elsewhere. So it's quite a complex story of, of kind of festivals and traditions meeting and, and influencing each other. Uh, so so tell us about the festival of All Saints, when, when does that fall? So that's on the 1st of November um, and that in the, the Middle Ages was known as Hallowtide. So All Hallows Day was the um, the Feast of All Saints um, and so Halloween is the, the Eve of All Hallows. Um, and that has its origins in... Uh, there were a number of feasts kind of in the first few centuries of the Christian church, which were celebrating all saints rather than just sort of one saint or a group of saints, um, some sense in trying to, to have a universal feast. And those could be actually at different times of year. So some of them were in the summer, in May, some of them were in June, like all kinds of times of year. But um, the 1st of November was kind of one of those. Um, and in time, so that that first turns up in, uh, in around the 8th century, around 800 Um and that kind of then became adopted as a good date um, and, and then later merged perhaps with whatever was going on in Ireland and Scotland around that time as well. Mm. So uh, t- tell us a little bit about the place of saints in the Anglo-Saxon world then. Obviously, as you said, there's all manner of saints days um, through the year. Clearly, they're important. What, what were people hoping to achieve by celebrating saints? Hmm. Well, saints were hugely important across the medieval church. Um, so, you know, every every corner of the medieval church had its own saints, but also celebrated saints from elsewhere, from all kinds of different periods of, of the church history. There were just a huge number of saints to commemorate. So they represent a really a great diversity of stories of holy people from different times and places. Um, so they were they were models of holy behaviour. You know, they were offering ways in which to, to live a virtuous life, people to look up to. But they were also people that you could pray to for help, um, people you could sort of appeal to if you were in a difficult situation, um, you could turn to a saint and you could pray pray to them to help you. So I, I wonder, I suppose, then just to, uh, trying to um, link it back into Halloween for a second. Uh, as you said, we're, today we, we think about spirits and ghosts and a, you know, a thin line bet- between us and the underworld and that sort of thing. Um, you mentioned that perhaps that's a tradition that's closer to, to, to the, the Celtic areas, if that's not a, an incorrect word to, to use. Um, 
is is uh, was there any sense in the Anglo-Saxon world in the Anglo-Saxon corpus that you've looked at of uh, spirits and ghosts and uh, an interaction um, uh, with with that um, spiritual side of of, uh, of the world? Well, it's an interesting question because. Um, in one sense, not really. There aren't really ghost stories from Anglo-Saxon England. And yet, in another sense, stories about saints are sort of ghost stories because they are stories about the dead interacting with the living, physically appearing to them, speaking to them, whatever, but not in a way to sort of frighten them, usually in a way to kind of provide, give an important message or to offer help or something like that. Anglo-Saxon stories often, you know, they believed in all kinds of non-human spirits, elves and dragons, um, monsters like the monster Grendel in Beowulf. Um, and all of those might pose the kind of terrifying threat um, to, to human beings. But stories of ghosts sort of frightening the living, as you do get in, say, the Icelandic sagas, you don't really get in the Anglo-Saxon corpus. Hmm. Okay. Brilliant. Okay, good. Right. Um, let's let's wrap up with a, a couple more questions. I suppose just a, a big uh, a big topic, really. You're a you're a scholar of, of the literature of the period. What what does the shape of the year and the literary descriptions of it in in the sources you've analysed tell us about Anglo-Saxon attitudes generally? Does it give us a big picture at all? Yeah, I think it gives us a really interesting sense of how, especially how closely connected they are to the natural world. I mean, it sounds kind of obvious, but it's just so um, permeating all of these sources, this sense that human life is just fundamentally intertwined with the natural world. And then very importantly, with the role of God as the creator of the natural world. So all of those things are sort of um, completely connected to each other. Um, natural cycles like, you know, the cycles of the, the solar year or cycles of growth and, and harvest and, and so on, or winter and summer or whatever it might be, have their kind of reflections in human life, in the seasons of human life as we grow up from childhood to, to old age or at different seasons of sort of prosperity or suffering in our own lives. They're often kind of imagined as being reflected in the seasons. So I think it really suggests a very interconnected sense of what human life is and how thoroughly it is part of, of nature. Um, and, and, and all of that is kind of overseen by God as the creator of nature and of humans. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then um, you, you've mentioned quite a few um, dates uh, and, and events through the course of this conversation that have a, a vague sense of familiarity, but are quite easily skipped over, you know, Whitson, um, uh, um, Lammas Tide, things like that. They're, they're, they're words which um, maybe if if, uh, if people follow your Twitter feed, they'll have a sense of, of their importance because you quite often flag them up. But um, but they they can, you know, we can easily let them pass them pass by these. I, I wonder how far is our current pattern of life still dictated by the, the rhythm of, of the earlier year and the sort of the calendar that, um, that these people adhered to? I think in some ways we today are further from it um, than, you know, than, than we were even sort of a few generations ago, actually, because, I mean, like you say, a festival like Whitson was celebrated continuously from the Anglo-Saxon period well up into the, the middle of the 20th century. It was the time for summer holiday in the 20th century. It was a bank holiday. So it was like people would go on their Whitson holiday and then it's not a bank holiday anymore. And so now people hardly notice it unless you, you know, you go to church at Pentecost. Um, and so obviously also living in a society which is so much more disconnected from agricultural seasons and from the seasons of the natural world you know we're so insulated um from you know uh, worrying about how much daylight there's going to be or how, how cold it's going to be um although perhaps we're getting back to to a sense of fearing winter now that um, people are kind of worried about how they're going to heat their homes this winter um but i think we are really very disconnected from that kind of that kind of thing and so um for, i think for a lot of people there's a sense of of interest in rediscovering um not just the way the anglo-saxons did it but the way it sort of it originated in the anglo-saxon period 
and then had this kind of continuity over centuries and centuries in different kinds of ways, of course, um, but that we've kind of lost sight of. And, you know, is there a way to, to rediscover some of that or to, to incorporate that into our very different lives? Um, people seem to be quite excited by possibilities of, you know, celebrating Lammas again or whatever. And there's a lot of interest out there in that. Okay, last one. Um, This period famously comes to a crashing end, uh, 1066, the Battle of Hastings. That's the, you know, uh, many historians say that's the formal end of the period and and, uh, and, uh, there's there's a a marked change. Um, With the coming of the Normans, is there a marked change in the seasonal year? Do things change suddenly as well? Not really. That's maybe one of the aspects of English life that that changed least, actually, with the Norman conquest, because the Normans, you know, they they celebrated all these festivals too. They were Christians, so they also celebrated Christmas, Easter, all these saints' days. Um, they had different favourite saints, but essentially the idea was the same. And of course, the agricultural cycle didn't change. Um, so there was a huge amount of continuity across the Norman conquest. And one of the things that interests me, because I'm interested especially in kind of English, lang- English language and, and um, so on, is that the English names for festivals, um, and for the seasons did actually stay really stable, despite the fact that, of course, the Normans had their own names for things like Christmas and Easter. And they, you know, some of those names came into English, but the the old English ones, the Anglo-Saxon ones, stayed remarkably constant, um, which really suggests something, I think, about how deeply rooted they already were by the time of the Norman Conquest. They weren't going to be upset even by such a huge political change. Um, it kind of, it was almost like too strong to be <laughs> disrupted even by the Normans. <laughs> That was Eleanor Parker. Her new book, Winters in the World, A Journey Through the Anglo-Saxon Year, is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Mm-hmm.